Hi there, Catsuit. Hi there, Nookie. Wait, I wasn't expecting you right now. Yeah, yeah, I just wanted to stop by and tell everyone about our event coming up Valentine's weekend. You mean the three-day education and social event focusing in on dating and relationships for kinky folks called the Kinky Dating Something Something and Love Blah 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 event? We've got great speakers lined up, including me. Yeah, also Lexi Silver, Zach Budd, Unruly Nerd Girl, and I'll even be presenting a four-hour workshop. Don't worry, it's in two parts about how to defuckify your dating and create a profile and a life that weeds out what you don't want and attracts what you do. Registration is open now. And the first 500 people get in free, so don't hesitate. Get registered at datingkinky.com slash dating dash love dash event. It's a great opportunity to learn from the people you love about the people you hope to love. I know it's on my Valentine's Day calendar. Chocolates are optional. The following is a presentation of Dating Kinky. Kinky connections and kinky education. It's kinky done differently. women and other wonderful humans want. A frank and fun conversation about the way people approach each other for romance, relationships, friendships, or other partnerships that make us happy. With questions asked by a guy. And now, here is your host. Hi there, Catsuit. Hello there, Nookie, and welcome to this special bonus edition of What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want a podcast about how people connect. I'm John, also known as Hi There Catsuit, and we have with us today a woman who just wants to turn on pleasure, intimacy, and love. Dr. Allison Ash, PhD, is a sex and intimacy coach and educator, Stanford lecturer and author who's been examining the intricacies of sex and gender for the past 15 years. A champion for others overcoming shame and deepening pleasure, she helps her clients experience the kinds of sexual interactions and romantic relationships they long for by teaching them how to create and sustain emotional, physical, and sexual intimacy. As a sociologist with a PhD from Stanford, she has a comprehensive understanding of the complex societal challenges that often lead to unsatisfying and disempowering sexual experiences. She draws on her extensive training in the Hakomi method of somatic psychotherapy, as well as the Somatica model of sex and intimacy coaching to support her clients to radically explore and courageously express themselves. At the end of this month, Dr. Ash will be offering a 10-week online course on sexual and emotional intimacy skills. And we are happy she is with us today to discuss that and more about what women and other wonderful humans want. Happy to be joined by Dr. Allison Ash, PhD, who's getting ready to launch an amazing set of workshops online about sex and intimacy. Dr. Ash, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. 
Tell me about these classes. It's a 10-week class that's starting January 26th. That's correct. It's a course that I've taught at Stanford University a few times now called Sexual and Emotional Intimacy Skills. And I am so delighted to be taking it out of academia and teaching it to the masses because this is the kind of educational material that I wish I had had um, and that I know so many people need and want. And it's so great to be able to offer it virtually right now and be able to reach folks um, across the country and even across the world. So it is live classes, but they're also recorded. So if that mm -hmm. doesn't work with your schedule, the material is still all available. And over the 10 classes, we cover the topics that I think um, folks need to explore in order to be able to have healthy physical, emotional, and sexual intimacy. So that includes consent, boundaries, nervous system regulation, flirting, seduction, how to expand pleasure, how to create emotional safety, masturbation, orgasms, fantasies, shame, breakups, how to find partners. I mean, just the whole gamut. Um, in a, in, a, in a really experiential kind of format. It is amazing to me how life has evolved because when I was in my formative years from puberty into college, I knew very little about sex. I, and my fans and uh, my listeners have heard about this. I never got the talk so my sexual experience growing up was much different than I imagined, and it affects me today. Mm -hmm. Even in college, didn't know a lot about it. Is there a lot more information out there now that people are wanting to have, or do they have to go looking for it? Well, I think what's interesting is that there is a ton of information out there and a lot of it isn't very good. And it's hard mm. to be able to discern what is sex positive, inclusive uh, sex education and what might be per, um, perpetuating the myth of normality or unrealistic expectations of what bodies do or what sex might look like. And in those ways, it might be inducing or furthering experiences of shame and disconnection and harming our capacity to create intimacy. I love how you're calling this sex and emotional intimacy, because so many times on this podcast, we've talked about the fact that sex is two to three good hours uh, in a wide variety of what you might do during the day. But the emotional intimacy is something that carries on 24-7. Tell me a little bit about emotional intimacy. I love the mnemonic device for intimacy, which is into me you see. I love that. And it's just this feeling of being seen and understood intimately like the other person really gets you it's such a wonderful feeling of being gotten and on an emotional level that's my heart it's my vulnerabilities it's my maybe my woundings and my sensitivities it's my desires and my longings um all of that and on a sexual level i mean i have to say that i think oftentimes some of the best sex is when there is emotional intimacy, when our physical nudity is supported by our emotional nudity. 
but mm-hmm. I have also had plenty of hot, wonderful, freaky, um, fleeting sexual experiences that haven't been very intimate, but have been very sexually intimate in that I'm willing to name my desires and actively pursue them. Um, I'm open to uh, being naked and being seen and touching myself and not being shy about that, which is incredibly vulnerable. Um, Mm -hmm. I think about sex as a collaborative co-exploration experience. So I'm wanting to learn about the other person and explore what they like. And that's also very intimate. So I think that there are ways how you can imagine if we had that safety built up in in an emotional level, it actually supports our ability to do that at a sexual level. But then you do have those rare, amazing sexual encounters where all of a sudden, particularly when you're traveling, because there's like nothing to lose. I just have some of the most amazing sex when I travel. It's like, might as well put it all out there. (laughs) You talked about normalcy and what an amazing word that is and that has evolved to be. All as I was growing up, all I wanted to be was normal. And it turns out that the normal that I understand now would have made life so much easier back then. Mm. Now we're in a situation where normal includes polyamory, normal includes kink, normal includes gender identification that when I was growing up, I would have never imagined. Mm -hmm. Is it easier to be normal now than it was, let's say, 30 years ago? Hmm. I love that question. Well, I think that this is so culturally specific and also just age demographic. I think that um, in my mid-30s, what's normal for me and my cohort is very different than some of the 20-year-olds that I teach um, and would also be very different than for my parents' generation, for example. Um, but I think what I really appreciate about the myth of normality is that it evolves over time. And the myth of normality is this. People only talk about what they think is normal, acceptable for whatever community and group that they hang out with. And if we're only talking about what we think is normal, then it's perpetuating this misconception because people aren't talking about what's abnormal. And I want to give an example of how this actually shows up in the queer community in a way where we're still perpetuating the myth of normality, even though so many diverse gender and sexual orientations are accepted. Um, I have a lot of dear friends, dear uh, female friends who are bisexual and are closeted as bi because in their tight-knit lesbian communities and circles, it is um, considered to be abnormal to be Mm. bisexual. And there is a stigma against associated with that. And so they don't share this part of their experience. So even in a very queer culture, there are still ways that we perpetuate a myth of normality and, uh, and therefore an association of acceptability that goes with it. And, and, and what fuels that is a fear of rejection. And in any community, no matter what your norms are, there are things that you can do to violate it and risk being rejected. That is such an interesting concept to me, because I would think that, especially in queer communities, you have very accepting people. And I even go so far as to, I hate the word acceptance. I want to go towards embracing. Accepting means you put up with it. Embracing means you absolutely take it in wholeheartedly. Mm -hmm. So that kind of surprises me. 
You know, and I think that that it's also very dangerous to refer to the queer community as one community. Right, of course, because there's so many different. Exactly. It's a rainbow for a reason, and I'm not being exactly. I'm not being cliche by saying that. Totally, and within that rainbow, there are going to be different communities that organize around different values and different identifying mm -hmm. factors. Right. Totally understand that, and I'm still learning. I am a cis male, and part of the reason that I do this particular podcast is to be able to understand all the different perspectives, mm -hmm. and I really appreciate that. When people approach each other, and that's what this show has been so much about, about the messaging when people approach each other, what do people do right? And what are things that people always get wrong that they shouldn't get wrong? Hmm. Do you mean approaching to flirt with, like cold call flirting, or, or what kind of approach? Approaching whether it is for a first impression, mm -hmm. if it's getting to want somebody as a friend or as a lover, I think the same basic characteristics are there. And I'll go to the extreme. If you're a guy, don't send a dick pic to a woman as an introduction. <laughs> uh, if you are a guy, don't send a novel to someone if you just want to say hello, but don't just say hello because they, people want substance. Yes. Those are the kind of things I'm talking about. Well, I might, I might take it in a little direction, different direction first, if I may, which is something that is really universal that I think people of all genders and sexual orientations can relate to, which is how are you relating to your desire for this connection? And that connection might be platonic or sexual. And I think that um, we as humans can make one or two mistakes when we are striving for connection, particularly uh, in new and uncertain connections. Mm -hmm. uh, the first is that we really, really want it and we succumb to our hunger and our longing and it can come across as graspy and needy and um, sometimes even feels a little energetically invasive and overwhelming and suffocating. Mm -hmm. And um, if this shows up on your radar, then what I really recommend that you do is you focus on your uh, back of your body. So you start doing some embodiment exercises around learning how to inhabit your body and particularly focusing on your spine, putting your attention on your back, on your butts, on your heels, because oftentimes if you are energetically in a little bit more of a hungry, longing, grasping state, then you'll lean forward a little bit more and your eyes will get a little bit bigger and your breath will get a little bit uh, more intense and your nostrils might flare and you'll speak a little bit quicker. There's this way that that starts to communicate energetically because you're actually starting to lose sight of your connection with yourself because you're so mm -hmm. consumed with your desire for longing. So by focusing on your body, particularly the back of your body, kind of pulling some of your energy back in and it creates the space for the other person to feel like they have some room to come forward towards you. Um, so then I think on the other end of the spectrum, another mistake that I see folks making is they start to think that there's something wrong with their desire their longing. Either it's inappropriate, it won't be reciprocated, they start to become afraid of rejection, 
and they think that the other person isn't going to like them anyways, or you're never, um, yeah. And so what happens then is we get really protective and we can pull our energy really firmly in, tightly in. And the other person might perceive you as uninterested or as painfully shy or awkward or insecure, and, and, but often really just as uninterested because when you're pulling that energy in, what you're waiting for is a completely unambiguous sign that there's interest. But if you're not demonstrating any interest, the likelihood that you're going to get that unambiguous sign of interest is quite low. And so it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy where you're waiting for a clear sign, but you're not giving any signs. And so then you feel like you're never getting any opportunities. And so I think then the answer is to, uh, for, for those folks, is also still to learn how to inhabit their body because desires and longings live in the body. And actually what I encourage folks to do if they feel a little shut down is to start doing some pelvic floor squeezes um, while they're breathing. So they're actually starting to play with their genital muscles. And um, that is such a source of sensation, of energy, of oftentimes confidence and pleasure, of embodiment, of reminding ourselves of our visceral humanity in a way that can have us feel more alive and feel more alive to the other person. Let's talk about making connections in the age of anxiety. Mm -hmm. So many people, myself included, have anxiety of some kind, some is very high anxiety, some leads to depression, some leads to self-worth and self-image. How do you see the ability to overcome that? What are some of the tools that people can have to overcome that, to be able to make good connections and know that they're worth it? Mm-hmm. Well, anxiety is a really challenging thing and something that I've struggled with for much of my life. So I really, I know it intimately. And I don't think that there's one size fits all cure. But what I do know of anxiety is that it is an experience of being stuck in our head in these uh, often circuitous and very uh, appealing and compelling thought patterns um, that uh, can be very difficult to find our way out of. And oftentimes what we're doing when we're feeling really anxious is we're trying to come up with any kind of solution or oftentimes 15 solutions, solutions to the solutions. Um, and it's a very cognitive process. And so I think the way out of that is not to dive deeper into more cognitive processes, which is what every anxious person does, but instead is to get into your body and to dispel some of that energy in a more physical, somatic way. So that might look like working out, um, but it might also just look like standing up and shaking your body and shaking your arms and shaking your head and just letting the, the energy release that way. It can look like putting your face in a pillow and screaming. It, um, it's research has shown that if you carry the same note um, it doesn't have to be carried well, <laughs> but you just carry the same <laughs> note for a very long period of time. It actually um, uh, invokes the vagus nerve, which regulates the nervous system. So it's very soothing. Um, mm -hmm. And so uh, scream into a pillow, sing out loud as loud as you can, right? Doing something that's uh, 
physical and different. And they, they tell insomniacs, if you're having a really hard time sleeping, don't just still suffer in bed, do something else and try again later, right? Because then you're going to be just thinking about how much you want to sleep and it makes it that much harder to sleep. So same thing is true with anxiety. Um, try and move the energy and get into your body physically uh, rather than spinning out in your thoughts. A lot of actors and especially improvisers, which I used to be an improviser, talk about getting in their head and talk about it just as this cascade of things over and over again. The analogy that I often make, especially with my daughter who's dealt with very high anxiety and even bipolar, is you're standing in front of the most beautiful window at a department store ever, and it shows you everything that you want, but you're afraid that if you open the door, there's actually monsters there. Mm -hmm. And to be able to get out of your head to realize there could be good things in there. So it's, it's part being terrified. It's part being thinking that you may not be worth it. I know I people always talk about, they say, John, you've got a great heart. You're going to find somebody. But there are other times when I hear everything and then I go, that's not me, <laughs> mm-hmm. even though it is. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's kind of a, a strange way of approaching things. Well, and I think in that moment, John, you know, the thing is, is that we have a lot of different parts of ourselves. And mm-hmm. that's not to say that we all have multiple personalities disorder. It just means that we have different parts of ourselves that show up and speak at different times. For example, we have our inner critic and we have our inner champion, but we have many, many, many different parts. And so if I was working with you, for example, and I offered you an affirmation and you had a really hard time receiving it, we might explore, okay, yeah, so part of you has a hard time receiving it. And there's some, there's some resistance there and there's some wisdom in that resistance. So so let's explore Mm -hmm. that. But I'm also curious, is there a part of you that enjoyed hearing it? Is there a part of you that maybe had a different experience around that? And noticing how complex we can be and that we can relate to something from actually several different vantage points. And when we realize that, we don't have to align and adhere so strongly with one, which for so often, for so many of us so often is the voice of the inner critic, because it is so Mm -hmm. captivating. Um, And the voice of the inner critic will always be there. But when it's just one voice among many, it doesn't hold as much power. So when people look at themselves, they'll look at themselves in a mirror. And a lot of times they don't realize that they're looking at the opposite of who they are. It's actually a reflection coming back to you. The way people see you is always different than the way you see yourself, because almost the only time you can see yourself is in a mirror. How do you take the vision of what other people see and be able to power yourself to see yourself in the way other people see you? Well, I think that this is a double-edged sword because if somebody is seeing you with loving, compassionate, empathetic eyes, you certainly want to take on that viewpoint of yourself, especially if you're Mm -hmm. being really hard on yourself. But I think if somebody else is being critical and judgmental and harsh, um, you don't want to take on that viewpoint of yourself. So there has to be a a discerning voice that's connected to your sense of self, your, your knowing. And I think that it's important to 
do the work to feed yourself affirmations, reassurance, validation, love up yourself, and to know who is it in your life that you trust. Mm-hmm. You trust them, you trust their opinion, you, you see how they move through the world, you, you, there's just an implicit sense of trust there. And you also trust how they're going to be with you, gentle, compassionate, loving. And you, when, when they give you a reflection, an affirmation, something that, that they're sharing about how they see you, instead of letting it go through your filter of whether or not you think it's true, you can also let it go through your filter of whether or not you think they think it's true. So if I say you have a beautiful smile, then you're like, oh, I had all these braces and it didn't take, da, 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 and you get stuck into whatever your story is about your teeth. But you know that I'm a genuine person and I wouldn't blow smoke up your ass. And if I say I, you have a beautiful smile, it means that I believe that you have a beautiful smile. That can be true. It can be true that I think you have a beautiful smile even if you don't like your teeth. Now that might then change your view of your mouth. It might not. But it doesn't really matter if you're still willing to accept that I like it mm-hmm. and that we might have different preferences and that that's okay because that can then start to loosen the narrative, which is that my viewpoint is the only viewpoint when it's your inner critic's viewpoint. You teach at Stanford, you're a lecturer there, and you're talking about the fact that this online course that you're about to launch into is something that you teach at Stanford. Stanford people, and I've been on the farm quite a few times, Stanford people are extremely intelligent. How do you break it down so this can be a class for the every person? Hmm. Well, I've been teaching for 15 years, and Mm -hmm. I think that the most effective thing about teaching is when you're having somebody learn through practice, through integrating skills. And intimacy is a learned interactional skill. There's only so much you can learn from a book or even a podcast. We really need to have these um, interactional experiences. Mm -hmm. And so what's wonderful about my courses, no matter where they're taught, is that they combine a structure of um, accessible lecture with discussion because that's how we destroy that myth of normalcy and really Mm -hmm. help people feel like they're getting that experience of exploring their own experience and sharing it and being empathized with and then exercises and the exercises are really where uh, folks are learning and integrating new skills and that's the experiential part of the education and even when these classes are happening virtually I use breakout rooms so there's still exercises that are happening and all of them are optional I wouldn't be a very good sex educator practicing consent if everything wasn't optional so I just <laughs> want to make that clear um, but I think what's so great about that is what I'm not doing is getting into uh, peer-reviewed research, although I do provide some uh, supplementary for folks who want it. Uh, we're not getting into um, studying things from these really esoteric, abstract levels. We're talking about it in a really practical way, and then we're practicing it. And mm-hmm. so it's... Uh, a lot more 
applicable to your day-to-day -day life and immediately uh, able to be implemented in your relationships. There are a lot of people that sadly don't think joyous things about sex because something in their background made sex a bad thing or did something to have them feel that whether it was a power situation or inappropriate touching as a youngster or something that might have happened between two people that was non-consensual that can put them to the point where they're they want the intimacy but don't trust the sex and and what comes in with that how do you get or how do you guide somebody to be able to move past that and to be able to enjoy the intimacy and enjoy the sex because i'm guessing it is a very long journey well i think regardless of our past experiences and whatever trauma we may have experienced what's important for everybody is safety is that we mm -hmm. can feel safe in our bodies we can feel safe uh, with the people that we're intimate with um, and that's that we can um, really express ourselves and um, and share ourselves vulnerably and not be rejected for what we share. And so when I'm working with folks who have experienced um, trauma in specific, oftentimes trauma is about a lack of control. When something traumatizing is happening to you, you uh, either have a very often a very real or maybe perceived experience of no control. And that's terrifying and traumatic uh, or can be traumatic. And so oftentimes it's around helping them learn how to take control back. So that could look like um, exploring self-pleasure and exploring your body on your, on yourself, uh, with yourself on your own terms. Um, it could look like um, having really slow sexual encounters where you're practicing naming a lot of boundaries and uh, noticing that you uh, are safe um, and uh, going slow. Pacing is really, really important um, to, and titrating so that you're um, going into these experiences of pleasure and then, or, or connection and then noticing if there's overwhelm and then going back to resourcing and just like slowly increasing your capacity rather than jumping into the deep end. That's not actually the best way to do that because you can get very flooded and inundated. So it's about learning, um, uh, gaining the skills uh, that sometimes can be really helpful for uh, finding your voice, being able to speak up for yourself, being able to assert boundaries, those kinds of things, um, getting support so that you, you can practice actually implementing them. Um, and, um, and creating safety in the body and creating safety in relationships through a, um, gathering increasing data points that show you that you can stay in your body and experience pleasure, that you can um, uh, speak up for your needs and other people re will respect them, that when you say no, whatever you say no to stops and doesn't happen. Um, and um, learning uh, how to identify situations that aren't safe and remove yourself from them um, rather than uh, enduring repeated experiences of trauma. Um, and that, that then comes into a lot about self-worth and really knowing um, 
knowing what what healthy intimacy looks like and that it's accessible and available to you so that people aren't settling and enduring for connections and, and, and dynamics that aren't supportive because they prefer co connection, even if it's unhealthy connection, over being alone. Realizing that you're polyamorous can be a wonderful insight. The Polyamory Dating Guide is a book about finding other people who share your view of polyamory and want to share it with you. This book includes a variety of sections on poly-specific dating, such as navigating online dating with a review of poly-specific dating sites and how to make a profile that works, real-time dating tips that will tell you where to find polyam people and how to make a positive impression, how to date as an existing couple, and if you should, dating as an introvert, queer in dating, and lots more. Get your copy at polyamorydatingguide.com. Hi. This is Jane Boone, the author of the novel Edge Play. It's a revenge fantasy where the big short meets Fifty Shades of Grey. Only the women wield the whips and the billionaires submit. You can find it at Amazon in paperback or for your Kindle. And be sure to check out my episode with Tara Indiana right here on What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want. Thank you. This is What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want, presented by Dating Kinky. Kinky connections and kinky education. It's kinky done differently. We're joined by Dr. Allison Ash on What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want. And now the curiosity gets to you, which is how did you get interested in all of this? Yeah. Well, I grew up in a family where there wasn't much intimacy modeled for me at all, not between my parents and not between my brother and I or my, my parents and me and my siblings. So um, I grew up knowing that I wanted to have intimacy in my life, um, knowing that it, something was missing that was vitally important to me, but having zero clue uh, as to how to go about creating it for myself. And um, I started studying sociology and gender and sex and all of that. And I, I think that whenever you have to learn something that everybody else takes for granted, you get really good at explaining it because you <laughs> see the water that everybody's swimming in that they don't necessarily see. And so I think that for me, it was a combination of on a personal level, a lot of trial and error, a lot of heartache and disconnection um, and a lot of therapy and self-growth work and explorations. And then on a professional level, um, exploring from a sociological perspective, what's happening, um, how gender is constructed, how power is constructed, um, uh, how, what sex positivity means, consent culture, all of these things. Um, and also understanding and starting to study psychotherapy myself and then bridging the gaps, right? Is I think where all the nerds kind of really get to feel like um, when they get to what they're studying and they get to apply to their personal life and what they're experiencing in their personal life motivates and informs what they want to study. And then when that gap gets to be bridged, it's very empowering. And I think that that's really, for me at least, has been one of the final stages in um, exploring and recovering from my own trauma is taking the lessons that I've learned, the very hard earned lessons 
and using that to help empower other people to be the motivating factor in the work that I do um, because I know what it's like to be lonely I know what it's like to feel like you are too much and not enough and some horrible combination of the two and you're ever forever going to be alone and um, nobody really wants you and you don't matter and you don't belong and that's just such an excruciating way to feel and um and it's so empowering for me to get to work with folks on a daily basis and help them have the kinds of sexual interactions and relationships that they want because it's it's a story it's a story that so many of us buy into and the more we buy into that story that we're not worthy of connection the more that story gains power and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because if you don't believe you're worthy for connection, you're going to self-sabotage and you're not going to put yourself out there and you're not going to trust it when it's available. And, um, and so I think that one of the biggest gifts that I have experienced and that I then get to give is this experience of loving my clients and giving them that acceptance and that belonging that then shows them that they're worth it and how to seek it and find it and recreate it in their broader world. In terms of your ability to have good relationships or good sex or just knowing your sexual self, was there an aha moment or a moment in time when you went, now I'm getting this, hmm. now I can move on? <laughs> I would say for me, it kind of happened on a more emotional level than more of a sexual level, because I think that somewhere along the line in high school and college, I decided that I didn't want to be that girl, air quotes. And that girl was the emotional and needy girl. And I've always had a very high sex drive. I've been very capable of having wonderful, uh, oftentimes, you know, not very emotionally intimate sex. And so I kind of, in some ways, prided myself on being, um, being that. And I think for me, the aha moment was, uh, I was, I went through a phase of dating couples because I realized I'd never been in a healthy relationship and I didn't mm. really know how else to have healthy relationships intimately modeled for me. And so I just started dating a bunch of couples that I admired and liked. This was maybe about 15 years ago, 10 years ago. And, um, and there was this, I was on a date and it was pretty PG 13. And there was this moment when the guy started to nibble on my cheek in this like kind of sweet way. And his partner got very activated and, mm. um, they went into this big processing thing and um the way that he showed up for her and how much they both accepted that she had these really big emotions that came up and on one hand you could completely invalidate it i mean he's nibbling on my cheeks our clothes are still pretty much on we're on a date what do you think is going to happen there's that way that you can go there but that's not at all what happened. It was we stopped and we attended to the emotional upset and there was the reassurance and the care and his gentleness and tenderness towards her was something that I had never really witnessed. And then I cracked because I got to realize how much I longed for that and how much I was fooling myself to try to believe that I didn't want that or that I didn't need it. And I think for me, that was a 
big change because I think up until that point, I was using sex as a way, whether it was kink or non-monogamy or anything else, um, to explore myself. But I wasn't necessarily using emotional intimacy in the same way to explore myself. And I think that that was the second phase of my evolution that was really much needed. Your website is called turnon.love, which I think is an amazing name for a website. What is your main mission about bringing this website to the front and also what your mission is in life to what you want to do? I want to help folks have the kinds of interactions and relationships that they're seeking to have and to empower them with the skill set that they need so that they feel confident to pursue them. And also uh, that they're able to move through any shame or other obstacles that prevent them from even exploring what those desires might be in the first place. Um, and so what I do is I offer a wide range of workshops and uh, courses and coaching uh, for individuals, couples, and groups. I work with the non-monogamous community as well as the monogamous folks so that they can have a felt experience around what it means to create and sustain intimacy so that they feel confident that they can replicate that more broadly in their life. And so oftentimes what I'm doing with my clients is I'm teaching them things like, how do you get out of your head and get into your body? And I'm practicing that with them and I'm teaching them real tangible skills for that. I'm working with clients around how to navigate erectile dysfunction or anorgasmia and helping them with both all of the uh, guilt and shame and longing and frustration that can go with that as well as how do I actually navigate it practically? Um, I love working with couples who just feel like the spark is gone and they want to get it back and they're not quite sure where to start or um, with men who feel like they're just tired of letting opportunities pass by because they don't know how to express their desire in ways that feel authentic. And the thing is, is that, the, that there are real clear skills that are teachable. And people think that it's just the je ne sais quoi, that's something that either you're born with or you're not born with. You're either suave or you're not suave. And that's just actually not true. You can very much learn how to create intimacy. And so wanting people to know where to go and that it's accessible and that it's available in a way where there's zero shaming and judgment. And it's just like, hey, we all could use support in different ways around um, feeling as explored and expressed as we want to be. As we're getting ready to wrap up on this edition of What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want, uh, let's go on to the elevator. You and I are on the elevator and give me your 30-second elevator speech about this upcoming workshop. Well, this is a fantastic 10-class course that's going to weave together science-based data with embodied exploration and skills development. And we're gonna go over really valuable topics that are gonna help you feel confident in being able to create the kinds of sexy, steamy, pleasure-filled interactions that you want, and also safe, vulnerable, emotionally deep, and um, heart-opened connections that will have you feel cared for and not alone. 
And I think mm. the thing is, is that if the pandemic has highlighted anything for us, it's how important relationships are and how resilient we can be around finding alternative ways to connect when the um, avenues that we're used to disappear and that we need support. We need support in the process because we cannot do it alone. And so take this class because I don't want you to be alone. And I want you to have hot, hot sex in the process. Dr. Allison Ash, PhD, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. And we look forward to keeping in touch with you as time moves on. Thank you so much. It's been so wonderful. I really enjoyed being here. What a wealth of information. And remember, that course will launch on January 26th, and it's sure to be amazing. And we're not done when it comes to episodes this week. Jessie Sage, the sapiotextual sex worker, shares her work with her husband, the plight of the modern sex worker, and so much more when she joins us starting Friday in the final show of our triple header this week. The fact is, we have more guests than weeks in the month, so I've decided to get more material out to you. I could be doing some Patreon episodes, but that's not like me. I don't want you to have to pay for the fun that I'm having, but I will ask you to tell a friend about the show. Drop us a review wherever you can, rate us when you can, and let me know how we're doing. My email address is john, J-O-N, at datingkinky.com. That's john, J-O-N, at datingkinky.com. We'll see you in two days with Jesse Sage. And next week, it's the author of Bow Down, Lindsay Goldworth. Until then, this is Hi There, Catsuit, or John to the Vanilla World. I hope I've earned the privilege of your time and remind you to always remember consent and to love each other always. What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want connects with you on social media. Check us out at What Women Want P1 on Twitter. What Women Want podcast on Instagram, and for our kinky friends on FetLife at WWW Podcast. This has been a presentation of Dating Kinky, Kinky Done Differently.